I see colors whenever I hear music, and they see nothing, nothing at all. That's terrible, and they don't even believe me. Synesthesia is a cerebral condition that relates musical notes to certain colors. It is with this neurological condition Olivier Messiaen helped shape the world's views and progress in music following the Second World War. Welcome to Sonosphere, the podcast that explores the sounds all around us in art and music movements through history. We're your hosts, I'm Amy. And I'm Chris. This episode continues our exploration into the birth of modern music. We began with Arnold Schoenberg, whose atonal works ushered in a new school of composers. Then we moved to Eric Satie, whose vexations and other sonic experiments influenced his peers, and John Cage, who discovered the piece years later. After that, we covered Edgard Varese, a peculiar composer who sculpted sounds in a way never accomplished previously. Today, we will delve into the life and works of Olivier Messiaen. Messiaen was heavily influenced by Debussy, Stravinsky, and Birdsong from an early age. He was enrolled at the Paris Conservatoire from age 11, the time when his dad was awarded a position there as a teacher. Messiaen, during this time, was fascinated with polyrhythm, particularly non-retrogradable rhythms. Essentially, a rhythmic palindrome which sounds the same played in reverse. So my name is Christopher Dingle. I'm Professor of Music at Birmingham Conservatoire. I'm a specialist in the music of Messiaen. I also broadcast on Radio 3 occasionally and write for BBC Music magazine. The organ came much later, so he had a very traditional training in terms of keyboard, harmony, music history and things like that. Initially taught himself to play the piano and then had uh, some lessons that were given to him free by a teacher in Nantes. And he was an exceptionally good pianist as well. He already had Gaspard de la Nuit in his repertoire, um, aged, what, 10 years old. So uh, got his clutch of premier prix from the conservatoire. Um, he went, the first time he looked at an organ console, he was 18 years old. Never intended to be an organist, even though that's one of the things that people first learn about and that he was organist at the Trinity. But what he was clear about was that he wanted to be a composer, and so he resisted going down the virtuo virtuoso pianist path. Um, he resisted being a concert organist, and he concentrated instead on being a composer. Uh, I'm Nigel Simeone, and I'm the co-author of a biography of Messiaen and uh, several other books about him. And I'm currently a freelance writer and part-time teacher and lecturer. He was an interesting kind of student. A lot of the people he was at college with said that he was somebody who was quite a loner in a way. He was a rather pr private sort of character, very wrapped up in his own thoughts. In other words, kind of like we maybe think of him when he was older, you know, somebody who loved to go for long walks in the countryside. This was nothing new. He did that when he was a kid, you know, when he was 
long before he even went to the conservatoire, he'd wander around the countryside, uh, of course, listening to the birds, among other things. And he was always, a, I suppose, a bit of a dreamer, but had the most incredibly serious approach to refining his technique. For him, birds were, they were the first musicians on the planet, and he also felt that they were basically God's musicians as well. And so every single work from 1952 onwards has birdsong in it somewhere or other. And sometimes they are there just as birds, sometimes they are there for symbolic reasons, sometimes, you know, in the opera they're also leitmotifs, there are all sorts of different ways um, that he uses them, but um, they are always there because he loved them. Birds were huge for, for him, and not just the noise they made, but for what they symbolised. He kind of thought of them as as uh, sort of almost emissaries for angels, you know? These were things that kind of came from above and flew to above. So, early on in his music, uh, there's a very beautiful one of the piano preludes called La Colombe, which dove. It's not remotely birdy in terms of the sound it makes but in terms of the symbolism it's uh, it's very very powerful he didn't actually figure out a way of putting bird song meaningfully into his music until a little bit later on i, I suppose the first time he tried it was in the uh, quartet for the end of time and of course after that everything became uh, much more exciting because he devised a whole kind of uh, system if you like for for for, for kind of reimagining the sound of birds uh, particularly on the on the piano but early on long long before that you know he he thought of birds as things that were uh, terribly terribly important but more as symbols than as sounds at that stage He was unsure himself whether he was truly synesthetic. I'm inclined to think that he was, but it's a, it, it's such a little understood phenomenon and very little understood at the time when he was talking about it. But certainly he spoke in depth about um, the colours that he could see. This was more than simply a kind of A major is blue and E major is red. It would be talking um, about sort of um, streaks of topaz and flecks of white and uh, wavy lines. There's, you know, it's a really quite complex thing that he was trying to explain. That means that when we talk about colourful instrumentation, colourful orchestration in his music, I mean, with most composers, that's a kind of metaphorical thing. For him, it was a literal thing, that he was creating colours in sound. So that may only work for us as a metaphorical thing, but for him, it was actually real. where 
he really starts talking about colouring music in a really big way is from the late 50s and into the early 60s and I don't think that's coincidental it was a way for him also to sidestep all of the arguments in the kind of rather monkish atmosphere of musical modernism of the 50s for him he could just say well pitch is E, G sharp and B it's not a major triad you know it's not modal it's not this it 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 just happens to be the colour that I need. And so that sidestepped these vicious debates about what music was appropriate to compose and what was not. Messiaen's faith and fascination with birds ruled his compositional style throughout his life. He states, It's probable that in the artistic hierarchy, birds are the greatest musicians existing on our planet. And on faith. My faith is the grand drama of my life. I'm a believer, so I sing words of God to those who have no faith. Writer Alex Ross posits that the difference between Messiaen and his Austrian peer, Arnold Schoenberg, is that Schoenberg believed God was only represented in taboos placed on norms in society, in his atonal inventions, whereas Messiaen felt God's presence everywhere, in all sounds. His faith was absolutely everything to him. Everything that he composed, um, he said, was to do with his faith. So regardless of whether it explicitly is or is not, he felt that everything was in the end. He also felt that um, if he was writing works of faith, then everything needed to go into them as well, which is why his music is so rich. So he was a profoundly believing Catholic, very open to sort of influences from elsewhere and sort of uh, quite ecumenical in his outlook in some ways, but without sort of compromising his Catholicity in any way, shape or form. Well, let's go right from the beginning, because uh, he said in a uh, in an interview that he was born believing. He was born a believer, which is quite a claim. And I, I guess it was certainly what he uh, felt. His, his parents weren't particularly religious, but he from early childhood was. So in other words, it's fair to say this is something that ran literally the whole way through his life. I mean, from quite early childhood through to the very end. Messiaen said that resonance will exist as long as we have ears to listen to what surrounds us. His chord of resonance is strongly dissonant in effect, but still has the C major at its base, a natural foundation for roaring crescendos and climaxes. The Lord, for Messiaen, resonated in dissonance and consonance alike. He said, actually, when somebody asked him about this, you know, do you have to be a kind of fully signed up, deeply devout Catholic to understand your music? And he said, no, but only one of those could have written it. Fair enough. <laughs> Rebecca Rishon. I'm professor of clarinet at Ohio University, which is located in Athens, Ohio. He had just completed a work for organ called Les Coglolieux, and he was drafted, but due to poor eyesight, he was found unfit for active service. So instead, he was sent to work as a furniture mover and then as an orderly, eventually um, in Verdun. And it's in Verdun, in France, where he met two of the um, musicians who would premiere the quartet with him, the cellist Etienne Pasquier 
and the clarinetist Henri Akoka. The three men were captured in June 1940, and they were um, they were captured in a forest by the Germans and sent on an arduous 43-mile hike to an area called Nancy. It was only in that open field near Nancy where the Germans quartered their prisoners before transporting them to the prison camp that the clarinetist Akoka read the Abyss of the Birds, the third movement of the quartet, for the first time. So this was actually the first movement to be composed. It was composed before Messiaen was actually in the prison camp, and Akoka actually complained that it was too difficult and he thought he wouldn't be able to play it, but Messiaen was very encouraging. Once they got to the prison camp, they were put in barracks, As Messiaen said, when he arrived in the camp, at first he was stripped of his clothing, but he continued to guard with a fearsome look, a satchel containing all of his treasures, a little library of pocket orchestral scores that he said would be his consolation when he suffered from hunger and cold. Pieces from Bach to Berg were in that satchel, but the officer let him keep his scores, Messiaen said, because he gave him such a terrible look. A German officer named Karl Albert Brühl gave Messiaen pencils, erasers, and manuscript paper and gave him a, a barrack in which to compose. Now, this may seem surprising, but actually musicians were given special treatment by the Germans in the prison camps, maybe due to Germany's long musical tradition, but also perhaps because France collaborated with the Germans. The Germans wanted to put on a good show for the Red Cross when they visited, so they, they had The the prisoners had privileges. There was a barrack, a theater barrack, which was actually where the quartet was premiered. Later, after Messiaen was liberated, there was a camp orchestra and a jazz band. There was also a library and a newspaper. The camp, you know, the prison camp was, was quite a contrast to the concentration camps. Nothing like those. You know, those were where people were sent to die. But the prison camps were really just for incarceration. That's not to say that they didn't suffer. They certainly did. Messiaen suffered from hunger greatly. And as a result, he said it led him to dream in color and that's what led him to reread the apocalypse the book of revelation because it has so many beautiful colors in it and that book the book of revelation inspired him to write his quartet which takes its title from the angel who raises his hand toward heaven and says that there will be time started having colored dreams i mean it seems to seems to have heightened his synesthesia So Etienne Pasquier and Henri Akoka were also members of the French army. Um, and they met Messiaen in Verdun before they were put in the prison camp. Etienne Pasquier was the member of the Pasquier Trio with his brothers Jean and Pierre, and he was a child prodigy and was a corporal of music, and he was actually put in charge of Messiaen. Messiaen was in his his group that he was in charge of, and Pasquier actually recalled in, in my book, it's very moving, about he would go on 
military watches with Messiaen and, and listen to the birds, and it's very beautiful. Akoka also met them in Verdun. He was the only one who had the instrument with him because obviously, of course, a cello was too big for Pasquier to, to take with him, and Messiaen had no piano. So as I said, the abyss of the birds was the first movement to be written. Jean Le Boulet, the violinist, um, he did not meet the others until he was sent to the prison camp. And he was actually put in the same barrack as the clarinetist Akoka, and so they became friends. And so Akoka told Nessian, oh, there's a violinist in my bunk. And so one thing led to another, and they formed a quartet. Well, um, they got their instruments thanks to the official um, Carl Albert Brühl who helped them. Um, Pasquier went into Gerlitz with the officer and got a cello, and they had instruments for the prisoners in the camp, you know, as I said, because they had special privileges so they could play instruments. I, there's a quote in my book, I'll just read some of it about Messiaen's version of the story that I debunk in my book. He says, the Stalag was buried in snow. We were 30,000 prisoners. French for the most part, with a few Poles and Belgians. The four musicians played on broken instruments. The keys on my upright piano remain lowered when depressed. It's on this piano, with my three fellow musicians, dressed in the oddest way, completely tattered, and wooden clogs large enough for the blood to circulate despite the snow underfoot. That I played my quartet. The most diverse classes of society were mingled. Farmers, factory workers, intellectuals, professional servicemen, doctors and priests. So it's a very moving depiction of the premiere, but as I wrote about in my book, unfortunately, a lot of it is not true. Although Messiaen's piano was sorely inadequate, Pasquier, when I interviewed him, repeatedly affirmed that his cello had all four of its strings. While Messiaen said in a later interview that the, the Germans had put a heater on the stage and so the keys on the clarinet melted, that's not true either because if the keys on the clarinet would, were hot enough to melt, the wood of the instrument would have ignited. And then finally, Messiaen's estimate of 5,000 people in the audience was not at all right. There, there really could have been no more than 400 people there because it was premiered in, in a barrack which could only hold that many people. Um, it, it was not in the open air, it was in the dead of winter, so it could not have been, you know, so there were hundreds of spectators, not thousands. And a lot of people have wondered why Messiaen would mythologize history. Pasquier thought it was because it just amused him to say that. I think it's kind of like part of his, what I call his messianic vision, you know, that he wanted to um, perpetuate. He, he was moved by the experience and he just felt compelled to embellish it a little bit. Non-musicians, it's a lot of the quartet for the end of time is very strident, cacophonic even to some, but um, they were so moved by the experience that they were utterly silent. 
They approached Messiaen members of the audience afterward to talk to them. They were so moved. It was it was quite a, an experience, you know, um, because the piece is difficult as it is to perform in, in, in present day. But to have performed it in those conditions, you know, even though the cello had all four of its strings and the instruments were inadequate, they still were not great, you know, professional instruments. So it was difficult to play this piece. And also, you know, when they were hungry, when they were cold, when they were demoralized. So it's a pretty amazing story. Alex Ross writes, For Messiaen, the end of time also meant an escape from history, a leap into an invisible paradise, hence the hypnotical simple E major chords in the two louanges. The post-war avant-garde composers who studied with Messiaen, Boulez, Stockhausen, Zanakis, wanted to eradicate all traces of the old world, but their teacher was not afraid to look back. Messiaen returned to Paris and the Paris Conservatoire in 1942. France was still under German occupation, but Messiaen was able to restart his musical career by remaining apolitical. He began work on his most grandiose piece to date, Tarangalila Symphony in 1946. Tarangalila is from the Sanskrit. Its implications are richly varied. Lila literally means a game in the sense of divine workings in the cosmos, the game of creation, destruction, and reconstruction. But Lila is also love. Taranga is time that flies, time that runs out like sand from an hourglass. Taranga is movement and rhythm, and therefore, Tarangalila means altogether song of love, hymn to joy, time, movement, rhythm, life, and death. Completed in 1948, Paul Griffiths describes the Ten Movement Symphony as a celebration of exhilarating pulsation of radiant harmony. Of the rich colors to be found in a large orchestra, a composition to crown his earlier achievements and at the same time display new concerns he shared with the young students who had gathered around him at the Paris Conservatoire. In this composition, you hear Messiaen explore the use of talas, or a regularly repeating rhythmic phrase, particularly as rendered on a percussive instrument with an ebb and flow of various intonations represented as a theca, a sequence of drum syllables or bowl. This came from Messiaen's studies of 13th century Indian theorist Sangadeva, presented in his writings Samgit Tara Natkara. Messiaen met John Cage through Boulez and invited him to perform sonatas and interludes and other prepared piano pieces at the Conservatoire in 1949. Messiaen possibly rejuvenated by this performance and his students, as well as their curiosity to search out the most modern of musical forms. This led to his work for Rhythm Studies. The second part, Modes of Durations and Intensities, was key to leading Pierre Boulez and Carline Stockhausen on their path toward total serialism. He first came across Boulez. This is, this is a great little story. He first came across Boulez when he heard about this very talented uh, student who arrived from the south of France and turned up at the Conservatoire. And in his diary, Messiaen wrote down, first time he met Boulez, he put, Pierre Boulez coming to see me, apparently very gifted, likes modern music which was pretty much what Boulez was at that time. He was a very brilliant student and 
in fact, you know, his his harmony exercises from when he was in Messiaen's class uh, survive and show that he was, uh, you know, very good at the things that uh, people had to be good at as well as the things that they wanted to be good at. Uh, so he was one of the first people to join Messiaen's class at the Conservatoire. This is the class that started after he came back from the prison camp, uh, after the quartet for the end of time, a couple of years later. And in fact, both Boulez and Yvonne Lorio, who went on to become the second Mrs. Messiaen, both of them remember that, that at that very first class, Messiaen talked about Debussy's prelude for the afternoon of a fawn and had with him the little miniature score, the little pocket score of that piece that he'd actually taken with him into the camp. And they knew that because it had the stamp on it to say that it had been approved for bringing into the camp. So while it's true to say that uh, Messiaen was hmm, cautious, shall we say, about some of Boulez's more extreme thoughts and certainly more extreme pronouncements, uh, it's not true to say that he sort of ran away from them. I don't think he took refuge in the good old days. He was fascinated. And, and you know, as I say, there is a, 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 an element of Boulez actually having an influence on him as well as the other way round. Certainly, Boulez is very kind of, you know, enlightened thinking and, and about you know, just what was possible comes marvelously to the fore, I think, in a, in a, a piece uh, from the 50s like Wazo's Exotique, Exotic Birds, which was written for the concert series Boulez Ran, and which is a piece where Messiaen is both uncompromisingly modern and utterly, unmistakably true to himself. Uh, so, you know, he found a way of, of reconciling the two without, I think, becoming kind of backward looking. Adding a 12-tone principle to the algorithms and automatic operation which Cage had displayed along with the four characteristics of sound, amplitude, duration, frequency, and timbre, Messiaen had realized total serialism. I mean, Messiaen, um, I mean, he always had, uh, I mean, you know, great contradictions within, within him. I mean, in a sense, he's a kind of romantic modernist. In terms of his um, music, there are kind of huge sweeping things, but there are also incredibly abstract things that are worked out and abstruse things. And, and that goes right the way through his career. And he, he, he never totally got rid of using all the numbers and things like that. But in the late 90s, well, as early as 1944, he'd been commenting in his class at the Conservatoire. He couldn't understand why Schoenberg had um, applied an organization to pitch and not thought about applying it to any of the other parameters of music. And, um, and he made a note in his diary, make a series of rhythms. And this eventually materialized. There are seeds of it in his symphony to Angelila, but it eventually synthesized in the piano piece Mo Vella et Intensity, one of four rhythmic studies, which became a kind of um, totem for the avant-garde. Like all great composition teachers, and he was certainly a great composition teacher. One of the things that a great composition teacher does is produce composers who don't imitate their teacher. They produce composers who have, you know, the confidence to go their own way. You can go back half a century to um, Janáček's pupils, and none of them sound like Janáček, but they were very gifted musicians. Messiaen's pupils, who are pretty starry lots, so you've got 
particularly Boulez and Stockhausen as the kind of giants, they very, very rarely sound anything like their teacher, but they would certainly both uh, say that he had a big influence on them, but it wasn't the influence of his musical language, it was the influence of the way he made them think as composers. None of Messiaen's pupils sound like imitation Messiaen, and I think he'd, be, he'd have been horrified if they, if they had what that does. I mean, each single note has, uh, he creates three what he calls modes. It's, whether it's serial or not is a, is a moot point, but it's the, it opens the doorway to total serialism because each note, so you know, if you have the note E flat a couple of octaves up from middle C, then that would always be a hemi-demi-semi-quaver. It would always have the same attack, it would always have the same dynamic any time that it is played. So each note becomes a unique event and an unchanging um, event within these kind of parameters. So one way of looking at it is that the sort of, you know, the atomic bomb of contemporary music had actually split the musical atom um, and completely blown up the nature of the way that composition was done. This set the younger generation herring off towards total serialism and um, caused a huge stir at Darmstadt and places like that. Messiaen effectively opened a door to total serialism for them, watched them all gallop through and then quietly closed it after them and wandered off into the garden to listen to the birds. But the procedures did remain with him. By then, he was a composer with a very distinctive uh, set of kind of musical fingerprints. So it wasn't so much rejecting it. I mean, he always went along to, to hear these new pieces and loved them. And, you know, he was a huge fan of uh, some of Boulez's pieces, some of Stockhausen's pieces, and Zenakis particularly, whose music he loved. But he didn't see any reason to, to copy it. I mean, he did already have his own musical language. The other thing I think is this. Something Messiaen never, ever lost sight of for him, and the serialists, of course, would disagree with this, but for him, there was something absolutely elemental about the sort of sound of a triad. I mean, about the sound of kind of common chords. He knew that these things had, uh, you know, for him at least, enormous power, and he didn't want to lose that by going down the route of serialism, which makes that, you know, which kind of gets away from that idea altogether. He was, in other words, very happy to experiment, but his instincts kind of drew him back, not to where he'd begun, but to a place that was sort of somewhere between where he was in the quartet for the end of time, 1940, and where he ended up in the 60s and 70s with these marvellous late pieces, which manage a kind of brilliant double act of both sounding as if they're by the same composer who wrote the quartet for the end of time, but they've got a kind of boldness and brilliance that's something new. And a lot of that is due to, I think, what he thought of as his kind of unique flavour of newness, which was this incredible, very brilliant trick that he developed of being able to produce sounds that were close to, in terms of what the piano and other instruments could do, as close as he could get to birdsong. And it was really birdsong added on top of what he'd already developed before that makes these late pieces so uh, unbelievably special, I think. Messiaen escaped the world of composition's shift to serialism through religion, nature, and birdsong. 
According to Michael Johnson, he was pillared by the atonal elite for not being far enough avant-garde. According to Justin Rawls, all aspects of the Anthropocene have come to sonically dominate our environments, silencing many voices. Many bird populations around the United States are again in decline. Messiaen famously considered birds the greatest musicians. How many of their songs do you know? How many would you miss if they were gone? There's a brief period in what tends to be known as the experimental period where he does strip out everything from his early years and all these luxuriant modal harmonies because he'd created his own modes, these modes of limited transposition, which enabled him, I mean, they have different combinations of notes from, say, a major or minor scale, but it was a way, or at least one of the benefits of it is that you get lots of sort of allusions to tonality without following a kind of 19th to 18th century style tonal language. Messiaen spent the rest of his career at the school as a teacher as well as continuing to compose. Messiaen was the organist at Saint Trinité from 1931 until a few months before his death in 1992. He would draw large crowds with his free recital Sundays. American composer Aaron Copland wrote about his visit to Saint Trinité to witness Messiaen performing in the church. Copland wrote, Everything from the devil in the bass to Radio City Music Hall harmonies in the treble, why the church allows it during service is a mystery. Messiaen composed Meditation sur les Mystilies de la Sainte Trinité. This piece brought together forms of serialism and Indian rhythms of his earlier years. It is argued whether this is an homage to Christian Trinity or Sainte Trinité. Also at Saint Trinité, he was commissioned to compose what is said to be his most universally popular piece, Saint Francois de Assisi in 1975. Towards the end of his life, you get these vast musical monuments, um, the Oratorio de Transfiguration, biggest of all, the opera Saint-Francois d'Assise, which is four and a half hours of music, orchestra of 120, a chorus of 150. I mean, when they did a production in the Festival Hall in London in 1988, it required a 10-ton truck just to take the chorus parts to the hall. So it's a you know, huge, huge work. Messiaen's serial technique and his dabbling in stochastic music with his quatre todays proved to be most influential on future composers. In New York in 1970, the New York arts patron Alice Tully commissioned Messiaen to do a commemoration of the upcoming American Bicentennial. In 72, Messiaen and his wife Lauriade traveled to Utah. Looking over Bryce Canyon, Cedar Breaks, and Zion Park, Messiaen reawakened in the immense solitude, he called it, of the wide-open spaces of Utah, spaces that he said glorified God and his creation of physical beauty, spaces that Messiaen filled with 13 strings, wind, piano, and brass, giving off effects of resonance and reverb. Canyons to the Stars was the result, and touted one of his and Tully's greatest achievements. The last completed orchestral work, you've got a very clear kind of harmonic sequence. So it starts uh, with a movement that tends constantly towards E major with the seventh and the ninth, and a final movement, which is a very sophisticated game around um, the A major triad. But 
very, very clearly using um, harmonies which Mozart would never have recognised and also harmonies which Messiaen wasn't even using in the 1940s. These are, um, these are new kinds of harmonies but there's a, a kind of tonal underpinning to them. So it's a, an incredible combination of craft and inspiration. When he does use that kind of serial technique again, it occurs twice after 1949. Once in a um, in one of the pieces from Catalogue d'Oiseaux, his sequence of bird portraits for piano, where it's uh, with the tawny owl, and it is a sense of the fear of the night. Um, and then in the stigmata scene of his opera, Saint-Francois, again, a mode of rhythms and pitches and timbres. And this is to evoke this really rather disturbing night during which you uh, really quite disturbing things are going to happen. So he associated it with fear and with darkness. Um, he described serial music as being uh, he said he saw no colours in it, it was only black or grey. Serial atonal music is without colour, it is black and white. Except for fear and anxiety, I see no emotion in this language. I'm afraid the love in music is missing from this world. Et expecto resurrectionem mortuorum, which means, and I wait for the resurrection of the dead, which he first performed in the Saint-Chapelle in Paris and then in Chartres Cathedral in the 60s. So this is quite late on, Messiaen. And each of those movements has a quotation from scripture, each of the five movements in this piece. And the last of them is about hearing this vast crowd and there's something almost kind of pictorial about what he does in that piece. It's also Messiaen being very bold, these kind of prehistoric noises coming from huge, deep, low instruments at the beginning and this, this cacophony of gongs and things in the last movement. That was one of the pieces that blew me away and still blows me away. And it's unlike some of Messiaen's music. It's all over and done with in 25 minutes, so it's not one of these two, three-hour monsters. And I think it's, you know, if that grabs you, then there's, there's, a, there's a lot more where that came from. The world of black and white and serialism resonated with young European composers living in an uncertain industrial world. A world saturated by sounds, genres, gizmos, machines, and numerous electronic hallucinations. Messiaen's capacity to truly step out of that world was confusing and daunting, and he was criticized for it for his compositions not following the total serialist style. Periodically say, what's your favorite Messiaen work? And it will usually be the last of the sort of significant works. And he's not somebody who composed much that was not significant. The last of the significant works, you, know, you listen to piece and think, my God, that's an absolute masterpiece. And there's so much in that. So you listen to Triangle Leader and you're blown away. You listen to Catalogue d'Oiseau and it's just so rich. You listen to Harawi, the song cycle of Harawi, which is this, you know, it's a kind of 20th century vinterizer with a huge surrealist text. It's an hour long. You're just thoroughly mind blown by it. When I was a teenager, I went to a uh, one of the London proms in 1970, I think it was. It was the first London performance of a great big uh, piece for orchestra and choir and instruments called The Transfiguration of Our Lord. 
I had one of those uh, wonderful moments that you get when you're a kid of just being absolutely enthralled by this music. I mean, I was sort of shaking for days with the excitement of it all. I'd never heard anything like it before. So that was where I started with Messiaen, and it was a pretty good start. Today, listening to the environment as if it were a soundscape, a huge composition going on all of the time, in the words of composer R. Murray Schaefer, is commonplace. Controversy aside, Schaefer continues, Messiaen's place in music history is assured today, with some music scholars ranking him alongside Igor Stravinsky as one of the most innovative voices of his time. What makes people love the stuff is, is genuinely the sound it makes. I think this is music that gets people excited, whether it's a very religiously inspired stuff like the Quartet at the End of Time or something completely different like the Tarangalila Symphony, which is, as he put it, about carnal love and is as far away from religion as you can get. But which is a piece that when whenever you hear performances of it, I mean, it brings the house down. People, people love it because it's a very exciting sound. So I think, you know, the idea of Messiaen is this sort of slightly monkish, fascinating, interesting character who collected lots of bird songs. I mean, that's very attractive as a as an idea. But I think what makes him last is that the music sounds so damn good. I mean, it's a dangerous thing to find out about your heroes. I mean, all heroes have feet of clay, and um, I certainly wouldn't say that Messiaen was a saint, but he is someone who, the more that I learn about him, the more extraordinarily remarkable in a good way I tend to think that he is. He had his flaws and things like that, but there's an extra- there was an extraordinary generosity about the man um, and humility. I mean, even in the 80s, um, when he was pushing 80 years old himself and was uh, widely regarded as the greatest living composer, he could be seen queuing up to concerts, um, just in, you know, not getting free tickets as he could have done, just be in the queue with absolutely everybody else. And it never occurred to him that he might be able to just waltz in and be the grand figure. And so many students refer to the amount of time that he would give them, whether it's composition students or or performers. I mean, Peter Hill said you know, when he went and worked with him, there was no time limit set on how long they worked, and it would be all day. I think there's a, a remarkable humanity about this man who is looking way beyond the human. Check out the playlist accompanying this episode featuring works by Messiaen at sonosphere.podcast.com and click on Press Play. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and subscribe on iTunes. This has been an independent production by Amy S. and Chris Williams, engineered by Ben Fiss. A special thanks to Christopher Dingle, Rebecca Reichen, Nigel Simeone, Ben Seiler, and Megan Avery. Thanks for listening.